Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Micah. How's it going? Pretty, pretty, pretty good. How the heck are you doing? You have to make the pretties longer. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. I never even watched Curb Your Enthusiasm, but obviously already off track. And so this is going to be a fun day. We have a bunch of cool links this week, as we always do. And there's a one or two that you are in particular excited about. And I am most excited about the Nerd Alert this week, where you have researched the history of monospace fonts. Which I think yes. is like a thing we kind of take for granted a little bit. That is correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, that opinion so, is a fact. <laughs> that is that is in fact correct. I did some light research. So, I, you know, I'm always kind of like just doing the tip of the iceberg with something new, something educational for everybody. This was something I've been thinking about for a while. And I think last week we got an email from one of our members, Janina, who was curious about typewriter fonts and just like info about that. So, you know, I don't only focus on typewriter fonts. I focus on monospace fonts in general, which kind of contribute to a lot of aspects of our culture that we don't even realize it contributes to art contributes to coding contributes to zeitgeist and film it's crazy how many little aspects monospace fonts have been like hiding in so i'm psyched to hear you nerd out on history it's been a while since we allowed you to do that (laughs) (laughs) dad can i just do my history yeah no it'd be great so good all right mike are you ready yeah totally we're starting off with uh Pretty exciting one. I like that it's from Figma. Yeah. Lengthy article. I'll definitely give it that. I read like 99% of it. And I think the topic that they're talking about are like fallback fonts, which sounds very abstract to a lot of people, but it kind of dissects everyday instances of typography where like typography kind of fails us. So I think one thing you can think about is, you know, when you copy and paste some text, And when you paste the text in a new text box, there's little squares that appear and you can't see what glyph they're trying to interpret. That's an example of like times when there's like miscommunications and different fonts that are being used. Something that I see all the time is when you put an emoji and send it to someone and they get like a man and then like a brown skin tone and then like a gender symbol. And like, that's like an unusual thing that like no one ever talks about. So it's definitely very informative and and quite technical, but it's written in a very approachable voice and, you know, kind of playful as well. I definitely learned some things about different characters. You know, that rectangular box that appears when a glyph cannot be found is actually called a tofu. Love that term. (laughs) Did you know that? I did know that one. And the symbol, when you're looking at it kind of in the glyphs, view of designing the font of dot not def for not defined. Yep. I was reading that. I didn't know that either. So it talks about, you know, that as well as accessibility and typefaces, how, you know, a font really font by font varies in characters and number of characters. There are over 140,000 Unicode characters. So it's impossible for any font file to contain all of those, but it talks about, you know, how with different fonts, you need coverage for those different characters and how to make sure you get the best coverage by using fallback fonts on your website, by thinking about it, you know, across platforms for different languages. So it really covers a lot of aspects of making sure that your fonts that you're using are accessible to everybody. 
font fallback is a term that web designers are more used to than other designers. Yeah. That's a very common thing to have to account for with websites because that concept of having a font behind the main font just to catch any mistakes is a thing that we've kind of always had to think about in CSS. And even if that is familiar territory for you, I think this was still a cool article because it didn't strictly come at it from a web design angle. It came Mm -hmm. at it from a typographic angle in general, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And it kind of made sure that it made sense to like I don't know, the everyday person that's not necessarily a designer, but encounters typography. It even breaks down. Have you been seeing on like Instagram and sometimes on Twitter, people will put like random custom fonts in their text or in their bio? Yeah. It breaks down like how that works, but like also how that's problematic because it has to use these special characters that aren't like searchable in any right. way. So it was kind of interesting. Definitely learned something new. That's an interesting hacker technique where... There are certain Unicode characters that, let's say, look like the letter A, but aren't actually the letter A. And it's a way that some fishers make you think that you're going to Facebook.com, but it's actually for book.com. Yes, I was learning about those characters. And fun fact, I learned that those characters are called homoglyphs. It's when certain characters, you know, resemble other ones, but they have different Unicode characters. Also, can I just say homoglyph that came up recently in pop culture. I got you. I'm here. It's the typographic. We're current. So a capital I and a lowercase l and a lot of sans serif fonts look very similar. And it's just like this tiny little difference. You know where I'm going with this? I do know exactly where you're going. I'm just going to take an objective approach here. Our dear president sent out a tweet last week. I think that said like doing well is what Mm -hmm. it looked like on Twitter in, you know, the font that just that Twitter's displaying. You copy and paste that text and you'll realize it didn't say doing well it said doing welly with a capital i and can i just say once you copy and paste it in a different font you might see it you might not but so fascinating yes no exactly and the funny thing about that tweet of welly was that (laughs) so many news outlets just copied it and pasted it into their headlines and so all around the internet now the the american president is doing welly welly so so interesting i loved how that connected and i love the term homoglyphs like zeros and o's another example of common homoglyphs so really fascinating and like if you want to get your nerd on definitely check this article out another type nerdy article we have going is our next one and that's another episode of pimp my type which is the new typographic series that kind of explores all these nerdy aspects about type and kind of in a very detail-oriented way that's really approachable. It's a nice video. It's a nice article as well. And it's kind of a don't use open sans PSA. That's true. It's also nice because Oliver is a fan of the league and we're a fan of his stuff. So it's always nice because he he sends us a message when he posts a new thing. And then we're like, oh, great. We can include it this week. (laughs) And I started watching this even before he sent it because I think I saw it on Twitter. And the intro was pretty funny to this particular video because he's just like, going around on the street pretending like everybody hates open sands, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then spends the rest of the time actually talking about it in, in like a very useful way. Yeah. I didn't realize so many companies on their like universal websites, like Ikea and Chase Bank used 
open sans, but it's likely because they have so much language support and it's like such a go-to. But I think like it is a little bit ubiquitous and there are some, you know, people that don't necessarily have to support every language ever and can use other options for their body copy. I think that's very fair. And I mean, um, some of the some of the context around this particular font is that Google, I think, has spent the most amount of money on this particular font because it was originally a font designed for their Android operating system. Ah. And so that is why they have put so much effort. I say money, but it's, you know, effort and money, I'm mm -hmm. sure, into trying to make this as complete as physically possible for them to cover Android, which if you have to think about it, you know, Android is the operating system that everyone around the world uses. Oh, okay. That you makes know, sense. Like, yeah. Cheap phones, sure. it's on expensive phones. It's in basically every country. And because it's on cheap phones too, that has a much wider breadth than even Apple's iOS. And so I think yeah. they were especially concerned about making sure that it had tons of coverage. And then of course, you know, it's everywhere you see. And so a lot of companies start being like, well, that's a good clean font. Like, let's, yeah. let's do something like that. Oh, wait, we're actually legally allowed to use that for no money. Let's yeah. really use that. Yeah. I'm sure to like some web designers, it feels like what Calibri is to Microsoft mm. Word users at this point. And yeah. a similar actually design to it as well. I do like that that Oliver kind of goes into this thing like, hey, there's nothing wrong with Open Sans. Open Sans is a great font, but it, it is down to the fact that it's been used so much. Let's talk about what happens when you choose a font that is used that much. I actually just had a project like last week just doing a really simple microsite on Squarespace from scratch. And there was, there was like a site design beforehand that was really terrible and i was like is there any design notes i should carry over because they're pretty much like start from scratch and they're like well the client likes no to sans which is open sans and nope i did not use open sans <laughs> there are other options and it looks i mean like by being so default it looks like undesigned to a sense right if like you're trying to make something look polished and look like a designer had a hand in it and it doesn't need like universal access to all languages and Unicode characters. Like there's, yeah, no. And it's designed to be like a pretty neutral font already because it's, you know, a UI font. Yeah. And, yeah. And a, a lot of the current positioning of UI design is that, you know, like branding is meant to stand out and UI is meant to recede and like, you know, give way to the function of what you're trying to do. And so to use something that is intentionally designed to be extremely neutral as something that would hopefully stand out when everybody else in the world is also using the thing, it just, it just doesn't work for that a lot of times. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, there's definitely like pros and cons, but I think it's pretty interesting analysis that's no one else is like kind of doing a deep dive into. So it was really fun to watch. And honestly, he's really good at making like fun, cute videos. So like it's entertaining yeah. to watch when he makes these. I'm so jealous of his bookshelf. He has <laughs> his color coded video. bookshelf in the back. Yeah. I wish I had like, I wish I had that structure, but I also wish I had the room in my New York City apartment to have a bookshelf like that. <laughs> it's just, fair. it's just impossible for me. Okay. The next article we have going on is about. Wix's new custom typeface called Made For. So they designed this new, new type family, some nice weights, geometric, 
really honestly reminds me of Avenir, but it's going to be used across Wix's user interface. I also think it's meant for the users that are using Wix's website design platform to be able to take advantage of it as well. And just to be clear, you know, this is this is a very cool site that we link to of where you can look at the features of the font and mess with the font and like see examples of it. But unlike probably what maybe you're used to, there isn't there isn't a download button. This isn't for us to be using. Exactly. This is just a cool example of somebody making a custom font and the thought behind it and you know some of the details that are in it. So this is purely this is purely research, I guess. The website is beautiful. Yeah, I think they did a great job with this website. Yeah. I remember when like microsites like weren't that popular. Like when I wrote that article in 2017. Oh, and now, like 2017, wow. Yeah. I just graduated college and talking about Microsoft. <laughs> and now I think like people really do put a lot of care and effort knowing that it's almost used as like a little press kit at this point for the typeface. And I do really appreciate it. They have a really fun animation if you get to scroll all the way to the bottom using yeah. like CGI graphics. So that's entertaining. Their, their launch video at the bottom is cute. Yeah. It's kind of crazy yeah. too. It's just like, yeah. wow, what is the style here? I don't even know what's going on. Yeah. Like definitely a lot of effort put into that and a lot of uh, loudness in the design, but very fun. So I appreciate it. Speaking of font launches, yeah. let's talk about the fact that there is a new Futura in the world right now that has been released <laughs> this, this week. This is a big one. And multiple people texted my personal phone number to say, hey, did you see this? What do you think? Did you see this? It was like blowing up my Twitter feed. I also like... I, I follow Juan. So Juan Villanueva, who's, I think, a really active part in the type community as well. He's an educator. He's a type designer, was part of this project. So congratulations, Juan. It nice looks one. amazing. And so what's really fast Futura project, it's called Futura Now. It's by Monotype. It has 102 styles. 102 styles. It's a lot. It's big. And it's, it's variable. It's a huge undertaking. I mean, like... It's really almost overwhelming. I love the launch video for it. It definitely reminds me of like a Nike commercial. It gets me amped up. It gets me ready. Makes me want to buy the font. So congratulations to the motion graphic artist that got to work on that. But in general, I mean, there's so much, so much craft, so much effort. I can't even imagine how long this took. Yeah, I, you know, I haven't really heard too much about the process of this font, just that it's here. Yeah, I think, ugh, you know, there was a there was a talk yesterday that I totally missed, I think, with the designers talking about the process. But mm -hmm. if you want a little bit of a peek in the article that we have on this by Creative Boom, there is a quote from Juan that says, Before I started drawing, I collected and studied all previous versions of the typeface that I could find to get a better sense of how the design had evolved. Really fascinating. And you're going to see some really unusual, you know, styles of Futura. There's now Futura Now Script, which is a scripted version of Futura. There's a Futura Now Display. There's an inline. There's a shadow. I mean, it's just really extensive. There's 102 styles of you know, that just says a lot. And I actually really enjoy Futura Script. It's like a geometric script that looks like if you're, if you had Futura as a script. It's like really kind of warm but modern and it says that future script has been released for the first time since 1954 and so That's this is the first digitization of future script which i don't even one. know anything about 
digitization. It's a lot of syllables. Yeah, I think too, a lot of people are probably only familiar with certain weights and styles of Futura, which is fair because those are some of the most famous ones. Like, you know, I mean, frankly, we once did a whole article on a book about Futura that went into the the history of how popular Futura Bold was, right? Yeah. Well, it's actually really interesting. So Douglas Thomas, who wrote Never Use Futura, spoke at Type Weekend. And like, if anyone's interested in Futura, you should check out his talk because he talks about actually like the original Futura Bold was not the one we have now. It was like a fat face. It looks almost like this Futura now stencil was the original Mm. Futura Bold. And it was like looked down upon because it was used for jazz. And there was like, basically anything that was jazz was like wild and untamed and uncivil Mm. according to like design experts and so that was like the original future of bold and then of course it evolved to the future of bold that i feel like has ultimately gained as much popularity as we know today but i think future just has like such a complex history my goodness (laughs) it does i think just a lot of people have never seen some of the styles that are that are now in one place here which is interesting you know i think when when i was younger and i loved futura I mean, I still love Futura. That's why everybody's texting me. But, you know, when I was younger and loved Futura, I only knew, I didn't even know about like the condensed version. I thought that was a totally different font. Mm, I, you know, I thought yeah. it was all this like round geometric stuff in, you know, different weights and that was it. But the condensed looks slightly different. The stencil looks different. The display looks different you know now, now we have this script version that is kind of interesting to look at that i don't think i would have ever seen when i was younger it's just kind of cool i don't know you know it's weird it's like we think we know what future is because we've seen certain styles of it everywhere and there was actually whole other like extreme versions of it that were still counted as futura yeah totally so i was just really excited to explore this and i do hope to see a little bit more about the process being published and to read about how they even started this and where they began a little bit more and for what it's worth they do have some free weights it looks like you can get the script regular and the headline bold for free by like signing up with your email which i'm sure then they will you know try to sell you on the rest i think it's on sale right now i think it's like less than 200 for the whole family oh no you're right it's on sale 174.75 right now at least honestly like if I had a little bit more in disposable cash on hand, that'd probably be a good investment. I could definitely see myself using this. So very excited type news in the type world. All your type friends are probably very excited about it. Now's a good time, I think, to take a break and say thanks to our sponsor, which is Adobe. So thank you, Adobe, for helping sponsor this week's episode. Their creative suite, if you aren't already familiar, is one of the standards of design software and comes with a subscription to a giant font library of fonts that you can install and use pretty much however you like. Uh, We've even gotten a few of our fonts in that library as well, if you're looking for those. And we are super grateful for them supporting the community with us and sponsoring this wonderful podcast that you're listening to. Totally. And thanks, too, to our members. Um, If you don't know, we've got a small and wonderful membership where for a tiny amount every month, you get 
awesome extra resources in our weekly typographic emails every week. Those are cool fonts that we found that you might want to add to your arsenal. Current jobs or gigs you might be interested in. Um, at the moment, it's only $5 a month, and we're upgrading a bunch soon. So hop in now if you want to get those goodies next week. Heck yeah. Love it. Our members are awesome, and we're super grateful for everyone who supports us. So what else we got? Uh, we're going to finish off these links with a lovely little article about book cover design. So this article is by Tobias Fenschneider, and he interviews Janet Hansen, who um, is a book cover designer. And I think it was a really interesting article about the process of book cover design, what she all of her like kind of trials and errors while making a cover. She actually shows the process of one specific cover for the book, The Slaughterman's Daughter, and how it evolved. I love seeing that. I feel like we don't get enough sneak peeks into that look. And she gives a very realistic approach to it. Something that I thought she said that was really interesting is that it's also important to remember, too, that while writing is an art form, ultimately a book is a product and its cover is an advertisement. Hmm. So like... Yeah. And something I encountered too, when I was in publishing, she says something along the lines of, you know, you have to make sure that your book cover looks good on the thumbnails on Amazon, mm -hmm. which, you know, if you're in publishing, you know that. And she talks about, you know, how the process works and how it's not just an author and a designer that get to work on this book cover. There's a lot of people involved. There's publishers, agents, editors, sales. I think the cover, one of the covers I worked on at Penguin, got really, really far. They actually made like printed galleys, which are like samples of the book with the cover. But ultimately the sales rep said she didn't think it would sell well. And like they redid the whole cover. So talks like about a very realistic process. And, you know, I think a lot of people romanticize book cover design because they are like kind of this beautiful, more poetic side of graphic design. But I think it's interesting talking about like some of the struggles that she'll encounter and challenges she has to face. Isn't that interesting how that's the perception that it is this poetic side of graphic design while at the same time you're describing how it is for sales. It's an advertisement. Yeah, right? It's just interesting how we think that despite the truth of that. Yeah, yeah. I don't want that to be misleading. There's some very beautiful and poetic book covers that she has worked on that you can see here that are really enticing that I've definitely passed by in this tour and have said, oh yeah, that's that's really nice. So. I mean, I'm pontificating, but maybe it's just because there's still this idea that there's so many books that you could walk by on the shelf that this one has to be unique. Like, yes, we're still mm -hmm. trying to sell the thing, but we want it to be unique. As opposed to, frankly, I don't know, my world of product design, you know, in an interface, we don't want to be unique because we want people yeah. to be able to pick up and use it as, as soon as they find it. And that's kind of a difference. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. So def definitely different sides of the spectrum. Yeah. So definitely check it out. It's just like a feast for your eyes. You're going to love looking at it. <laughs> All right, Micah. Don't even say it. There is no sound. This is the nerd alert. Nope, it's not. It's nerd alert. I'm psyched about this nerd alert this week because monospace fonts don't get enough love. I frankly love designing with monospace fonts because they mean certain things to me that I love. Yeah, I think there's actually a history that we all take for granted as designers with the monospace fonts that I think you know, contribute to why we like using them in specific designs. I agree. I love designing with monospace. And like, if there's an appropriate time, I love pulling out some courier. But I think that there is, it was just a history that I never thought twice about, but started to get a little bit more curious about it. 
the same way that I kind of did with the Roman numerals, like when should a designer use Roman numerals? It seems arbitrary, but it's not. Mm. So I definitely want to dive deep into this. So let's go. Let's get started. Monospace fonts, aka fixed pitch fonts, which I'll talk about what pitch means, aka fixed width fonts, aka non-proportional fonts. So monospace fonts is a font whose letters occupy the same horizontal space as opposed to every other font, which is considered proportional or variable width that has, you know, the space, the horizontal space of a letter is proportional to what, you know, looks aesthetically pleasing when they're all together. So monospace fonts, if you're still confused, think about what was seen on typewriters or think about when people are typesetting computer code and what they're using in text editors. Those are monospace fonts. Monospace fonts have been used across many just genres. They've been used for coding, and we'll talk about why they're so infamous in the coding world. They've been used in art before, which is so fascinating. They were obviously used in typewriters as well, which is another common reference. And then finally, I'd love to talk about why we still see them in scripts for film. So let's talk about coding. Monospace fonts were widely used in early computers and computer terminals because of the limited graphical capabilities of these computers. So what was that limitation? Well, these computers were capable of either showing 40 or 80 characters in a line. So there was actually separate blocks that you would input these characters into. And because there was so much constraint in the graphics, every like block contained a letter. You couldn't put like a letter in between blocks. It was like a very technical process. And so that kind of led to these constraints of all of the letters being the same width. But then we get to today's use, and we're still using monospace fonts, even though we have better graphic capabilities. And I might have you jump in here, but I was reading that because they're used widely in text editors, actually monospace fonts have special, you know, extra care to them where the similar looking glyphs are more distinguishable. So kind of like those homo glyphs we were talking about earlier, a zero is more distinguishable than an O, but also punctuation is larger than usual. So it's easier to see in the text editor and that fonts are just easier to look at all day on a screen. How do you feel about that reasoning as to why coders use monospace fonts? I don't know. Some of that, I don't know that it's universally true that uh, punctuation is always bigger necessarily, but I do see how that could be beneficial because for example, like in code, if you're putting something in quotes, putting them in smart quotes, typographers quotes instead of dumb quotes like straight quotes could break the system. I could see how that could be a consideration. I've always been unsure if it's true that that makes looking at code all day easier on the eyes. I don't know how I feel about that. I've never tried coding in like Fanwood, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm not used to it, so that's got to be hard to get used to, but I don't know if it would make an impact on my ability to write code. I don't know. I am curious because it's monowith. Like, it's not necessarily the always, like, the most aesthetically pleasing to read because there's really consistent spacing between each letter form, but it doesn't, like, form beautiful word shapes like regular fonts mm. do. So I wonder, because you have a little bit more attention to each individual letter, you're more likely to catch typos rather than you looking at word shapes. You're more looking at individual letters. That is a really interesting theory because even though you're kind of thinking about it 
as instructions. That's what you're writing code to be. You're, you're almost mm -hmm. thinking about it as nouns that you're interacting with and verbs that you're interacting with, but not a sentence that you would read or say out loud. Mm -hmm. I have never thought about what it, what thinking like a coder would sound like out loud. This is a, my brain is starting to fry. It's very abstract. I'm curious if any of our listeners out there have opinions on this. If yeah. there, there's something about monospace fonts that makes it easier for them to use in text editors. Just curious. So that's kind of how it has evolved in our technology. Another way it's evolved in our technology, just quick side note before we get into another topic, is that it's still the most easily identifiable by OCR software, which is te text recognition software. So every day... Um, person might encounter this when you know how you can take photos of checks on your phone now and the check can process into your bank. A lot of the time, the numerals for the routing number and the account number are in monospace. That makes sense. I can totally buy that. Yeah. So that was interesting. Okay. So moving on to typewriters. I think a lot of people think about, you know, coding and typewriters immediately when they think about monospace fonts. So yes, they are very important to the history of typewriters. <laughs> Typewriter faces were monospace so that the carriage would only need to shift the same amount of space to the left each time a key was pressed. So it really had to do with the, oh. yeah, it had to do with the mechanical limitations again. That's fascinating. That makes sense. I mean, yeah. that took me a second because I haven't thought about typewriters significantly a long time. I was like, what is a carriage? But I now kind of remember that you type a letter, everything shifts a little bit to the left. I never thought about, shoot, if they were variable widths, it would have to shift different lengths every yes. time. And if it's the same width, it doesn't. It's just one one answer. Yeah. So I thought that was like pretty interesting. I never knew it had to do with the actual mechanics of the typewriter as to why monospace became the typewriter font. And I think a lot of people use typewriter fonts and monospace fonts interchangeably today, but we do have to take into account that there are typefaces that are created to mimic typewriter fonts that aren't monospace. And then there's our monospace typefaces that don't even have any aesthetic link to typewriters. So I think that's also like used interchangeably, but it's important to note if we're talking about monospace fonts. Wait, just to, to clarify, you're saying like I have certainly used uh, typewriter looking faces where it was like distressed and cool looking yes. or something like that. That's what you're talking about where yeah. it might not actually be a monospace font, even though the original probably was. Yeah, I think there's that font American typewriter, which mm. you might be able to imagine in your head that's not monospaced. So it doesn't carry on mechanical monospaceness, but still supposed to mimic a typewriter. That's interesting. That seems like a whole question mark of like, why is that a variable space font and not monospace? I honestly think because people just like the aesthetics better once they made all the spacing proportional. Interesting. You know, because some people just didn't, maybe there's like users of American typewriter that really don't care to carry on the integrity of the monospace, but want to carry on the... The, the look of the monoline slab serif. Right, right. <laughs> Describe. So a little bit of a fact about our favorite monospace font, Courier, which is my one of my favorites. It's a classic. It's so popular because it was actually designed for IBM's typewriters. And it was going to be released with the name Messenger. But after further thought, designer Howard Bud Kettler decided that 
A letter can be just an ordinary messenger, or it can be the courier, which radiates dignity, prestige, and stability. Just as he would say that in the 1950s. So that's um, kind of how it became so popular. It was for their selectric line of typewriters, which kind of introduced a new um, technology. So I think it gained a lot of traction. And it's interesting. There used to be a different way to describe the sizing of a fixed width font. So Courier was a 10-pitch typeface, which meant that at 12 points, you could fit 10 letters to the inch. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that was descri- that's how old um, typewriter fonts were described. Interestingly enough, Klim Type, Chris Sowersby at Klim Type designed a really beautiful um, typeface called Pitch, which is kind of inspired by typewriter monospace fonts. And he has a great write-up um, on the process of that. And he talks about a little bit of typewriter history and how that's influenced his decisions. So that was kind of, you know, really interesting to read as well. And then I think because it was used in typewriters and computers, it ultimately got evolved for artwork, which this is a huge deep tunnel that I didn't dive too far into. But E. Cummings' poetry is often set in monospace type because he does specific vertical alignments of columns for his poetry. Oh, interesting. And then typewriters so have kind of a history of creating visual art with just using glyphs and making them form patterns but then after computers adapted monospace fonts there's a sector of art called ASCII art ASCII ASCII and that's meant to like simulate different graphics so I always think of the guy that's like shrugging using like some slashes and parentheses (laughs) and stuff like that that's ASCII art yeah ASCII art is is actually a whole deep dive into the the nerds of the internet, I feel, where people have done some like really impressive things with just letters. Yeah, I was like kind of blown away by the link that the Wikipedia link for ASCII art. I was like, <laughs> oh, this is a thing. And I, I can't even get into this, but this is a thing that has to do with monospace fonts. So that was interesting. And then finally, my favorite fun fact about monospace fonts. I was wondering why they're still being used on film scripts. I think even today we see Courier as the standard. Well, there's a reason for that. And the industry standard for a script is 12-point Courier. And that corresponds with the time of a script. So if you're setting it in 12-point Courier, it's likely that one page of script will approximately take one minute of screen time. Oh, wow. So, So, I mean, I've always been curious about screenwriting and I've kind of tried to learn as a hobby. I always was baffled why that was, like, people say that, that, you know, one page is one minute. And so when you have too many pages, like the movie's too long. I never understood how that could possibly be true. That always seemed crazy. That's wild. It's based in typography. I love it so much. It's my favorite fact. It's great. There's a whole lot of resources out there about monospace fonts, fascinating stories about typewriter fonts, computer terminals, ASCII art. I highly recommend anyone to deep dive into this if you're at all interested in any of these topics. It's so fascinating. Wow. What a fun time. I do love when you go into history like this. It, it was fun and I enjoyed it. And now I have like a whole another set of reasonings as to why to include a monospace font in my design. I will say, you know, one thing we didn't really talk about is just 
the pure aesthetics of it. Yeah. That's probably a whole other conversation of the ways to interpret the way that it looks as a choice, which might be fun to dive into someday. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what is the story behind the monoline slap serif? As, like, mm. that's literally what it is if you break it down the, you know, optics of it. Yeah. Well, shoot. Good heckin' work, my friend. Thanks. Thanks for letting me share all of that with our fabulous audience. And thanks to our fabulous audience for hanging out with us again this week. We can't wait to see you again next week for more flippin' great type news and another great nerd alert. Absolutely. Okay, we'll see everybody next week. It's going to be fun. Catch you on the internet. Bye. Bye.